when we first decided to do this sermon series on, on, on the letters of John, of, of the Apostle John, kind of the way that I handle these series, because they're, they're such detailed books of the Bible. So what I'll do is like I'll, I'll kind of, I'll study the passage, I'll read through like the entire, like before we started it, I read through just the entire book over and over, and I just made tons and tons of markings throughout my Bible uh, of things that stuck out to me in this passage, or in, in, through, in all the passages, and then I kind of kept those things in the back of my mind as I would really dive in deep one at a time for each week into the, to the series. So that, that's kind of my process of what it looks like when I'm going through or when we as a church are going through a book of the Bible like, like that. And, and I tell you that to tell you this, when, when, when I got to the passage that we're on today, when I was reading through it the many times early on, even in the spring reading through it, this passage really stuck out to me. And I'd never studied this passage before uh, in depth, and it never had stuck out to me before. But as I was reading this passage, it really just was sticking out to me. So I, was, I had a lot of anticipation coming into this week uh, when, when studying it. But then this week when I got into it and I, and I started really studying this passage, I, I realized, you know, the process kind of looks like this. It looks like I, I, I'm, I read it a lot. I pray about it a lot. I talk to people on our team about it. We share ideas. I read a lot of commentaries, see what people who are smarter than me say about it. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then we ask, Holy Spirit, what do you want to do through this for our community? That's kind of the process because we believe everything's loaded in there. There's something directly for us in this passage. But this particular passage, actually, as I really studied it and dove into it and read what other people were saying about it in commentaries, I realized it's saying something a lot different than I thought it was saying, which that doesn't happen too terribly often. Uh, I didn't realize how much of a continuation of last week this passage really is. Now, if you were here with us last week, you probably remember it was probably one of the hardest messages in this whole series to hear. Uh, because it's one of the hardest scriptures in the entire Bible to read, that scripture that we, that we dove into last week. Because what, what last week's scripture says, it basically strips away any possibility of us being passive while there's a need right in front of us. It basically strips away any possibility and any excuse we may have to justify ourselves living well while other people are hurting, while other people are broken, while other people are poor. It gives no room whatsoever for seeing needs that we can meet and then just not meeting them. So that was a lot of work to kind of sort through that as a church last week. Uh, but this passage we're about to read, John really continues on with that. And so last week was just a forewarning right now. Last week was a little bit more narrative, like a lot more stories. And this week is going to be a little bit more classroom style. It's going to be a little bit more teaching, a little bit more of like, what does this Greek word mean? What is, so it's going to be a little bit more of that. So it might be a bit more to hang with, but I just want to give you that warning uh, right now as we get into it. So uh, let's just uh, read together First John chapter 3, verse 19 through 24. And I'm going to read out of my Bible. If you guys could just follow along on the screen, or if you have a Bible, please follow along that way. In your Bibles, when you come, it, it's definitely always good to have it in your hands and be able to see, hey, he didn't just write that word on the screen. He's not making that up. Verse 19 says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. But beloved, if, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. 
And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. Let's pray. Jesus, Father God, thank you so much uh, just for this beautiful, beautiful letter that was written to a church that had, was going through all sorts of different issues, Father God, but they resonate so clearly and so well with us in the things that we're facing in our world and in our city even today, God. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever and the, the, the same principles and the same things that brought hope then are the same ways that we can navigate and find hope in now today, all these thousands of years later, God. Holy Spirit, right now I ask that you be evident in this place today. That everything you would have me to say, I would say that and let everything else just fall to the ground before it ever even comes out of my mouth, before it ever even enters my mind, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, last week's message, we really began kind of a series of uh, sections in the Bible uh, in this letter, and they all start the same. 1 John 3.16 starts by saying, by this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We ought to be willing to do the same thing that Jesus did for us. This is our example of love. Today's passage in 1 John 3, 19, it says, uh, it starts by saying, by this we know truth. And we know if we're of the truth, which we all want, right? We all want truth. Nobody wants to sort of just like limp through this life thinking that they're okay when in reality the truth isn't even in them and they don't even know right from wrong and they're doing the wrong thing the whole time and they don't even know it, right? Nobody wants to think that they know what's right only to find out that in reality they don't know at all. Well, John is about to show us how we can assure our hearts that the truth is in us and that we are living the truth. Next week's passage, uh, the one we're gonna, it, we read the last line of it this week and we're going to read it again next week. Next, it starts by saying this is how we know that he abides in us is, is by the Spirit. And then, and then uh, 1 John 4.13 says it the other way. It says by this we know that we abide in him. Then finally, when you get to 1 John, 1, 2, uh, 1 John 5, 2, it says, By this we know that we, are, that we love the children of God. So it's very clear if, you, if you, you, know, you read patterns, you read things that are consistent in the Bible, you have to start to wonder, is the writer trying to tell me something? It's, so there's something very significant that John wants us to know, and that's why he's using this phrase, by this we know. John really wants us to know something. And what that is, is he wants us to know. He wants us to have confidence. He wants us to be assured. I, I, Pastor Austin, I love the way that you did that introduction, and we talked about all these, you know, this week is just such a heartbreaking week. And, and with, with suicides and all these different things, and it's like in God, people's hearts, they're, they're, they don't understand something, and God doesn't want us to have that in our lives. He wants us to be assured. He wants us to know that there's a path forward. There's a way of hope. There's a better road than the one that you're on right now. There is something that you can have confidence in, in this life. So this word know, it's a very, very loaded word. It's, it's the Greek word gnosko. 
And gnosko means, just like you'd think, it means to know or to understand. So it's a pretty good translation of the word to say by this, we know. But just to kind of show you the depth of knowing that this word actually refers to gnosko was a Hebrew idiom for sex between a man and a woman. For example, in Matthew 1. In Matthew 1, uh, you get the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then what happens is uh, Mary, the Virgin Mary, gets impregnated with, with baby Jesus. And Joseph is like, he's thinking, I'm going to divorce her because even they're, they're engaged. They're not. He's like, I'm going to call it off because he's probably thinking she cheated on me, right? So an angel has to go to Joseph and he explains to Joseph, Joseph, Mary, you need to marry Mary. Don't call it off. Take her as your wife. What, what's the child inside of her is from the Holy Spirit. She didn't cheat on you. So then it says this in Matthew 1.25. It says, so Joseph, he decided to marry her, but he did not know her until after Jesus was born. He did not gnosko her until after Jesus was born. He knew her not. And last week, if you, for those of you here last week, you remember we talked a little bit about um, in, in, our, in our culture, even though it gets downplayed, Christians have a very high view of sex. We have a very sacred view of sex. Because, and here's part of the reason we believe that. We believe it's in the context of a marriage between a man and a woman. And this is kind of, uh, part of the reason for that is that it's designed, first of all, to kind of be a pinnacle of assurance in your life. It's actually meant to be something that says, okay, this person is given everything for me. They've given all of themselves to me, their whole life, their whole being, everything that they are. There's nobody else but this person. This is what this is supposed to signify, which I think is part of the reason it can be so destructive when we do it outside of the context that God intended it. And, and in our culture, of course, we know that that's changed a lot. The concept and even the seriousness of marriage, it's been so corrupted uh, that really— um, and this is tragic, but even a lot of people who are married and they have a spouse and they're in a marriage relationship, they still go through their days sort of unsure if the other person is actually with them, unsure if that person is being faithful to them, unsure about their lives towards somebody that they're supposed to be confident in. But the Bible actually describes marriage as when two people becoming one flesh, meaning, okay, I'm one with this person now and forever. There is no other. And again, that should come with some security, some assurance in your life. Not questioning, not wavering, not wondering, is this person for me? Is this person with me? Is this person going to be there when I wake up in the morning? It's not supposed to be doubt in a person as if the person that they're married to is committed to them or not. So that's what it really means to know, right? It's not just an idea, it's this concrete, loaded word. It's as concrete as it gets. We all know that knowing a, about a person and having knowledge of a person is very, very different than knowing a person. Knowing about God is very, very different than knowing God. Knowing about truth is very different than actually knowing the truth and knowing you are in the truth and walking in the truth. To actually know it the way that Gnosko explains it is it requires a step. It requires that action back up your life, just like what we talked about last week with love. It has to be an action. Let me give you another example. 
And please, I am not giving you financial advice, okay? Please, I by no means, nobody come up afterwards and be like, dude, I did what you said. I'm not saying to do that. And I lost all my money. Please don't do that. Because you, you probably will if you do that, okay? But I, I, was, I, I was having lunch with a friend of mine a few weeks ago. And he was telling me about how about five years ago, or however, I don't know how many years ago it would have had to be now. He said that he bought a handful of bitcoins for $100 a piece, Okay? And he said that for years, a couple of years leading up to it, he had watched it rise, he had researched this technology, and he felt confident enough in it that he did that. Now, for those of you who may be unfamiliar with Bitcoin, it's what's called a digital currency or a cryptocurrency. And uh, the concept has really taken off quite a bit, but there's still tons of things that at least I have no idea about. Like, I don't understand it at all. I don't understand the value. I don't get why it's valuable. But... As of yesterday, I looked it up, and one Bitcoin is worth about $7,500. One Bitcoin, okay? But the price, it changes very dramatically. So like, you, you, tomorrow it could be $1,000 less, or it could be or $3,000 more. And because of that, most investors, they'll still tell you, stay away from that, because you have no way of knowing, okay? So today, if you want to buy one, you'd have to, to buy a whole coin, you'd have to go and you'd have to spend $7,500. Dollars. Now, most people don't have that kind of money, but even if they did have that kind of money, most people do not have that type of confidence in something that they can't even see to spend that much money on something that they cannot even see. But right now, today, if you had even $100 and somehow, miraculously, you were given the opportunity to buy a Bitcoin for $100, you could go back in time those five years and buy a Bitcoin for $100, you would be crazy to not do that. That would make no sense at all. But I remember years ago seeing Bitcoin, reading about Bitcoin, seeing what people were paying for Bitcoin, saying it is insane that people are spending $100 for an invisible coin. <laughs> Doesn't that sound so stupid? <laughs> I called it fake money. It's like <laughs> they're spending $100 on this invisible coin, right? I had no confidence in it at all. I didn't know. But because of that, I, just like most of the world, Missed out on it. But watch this. You're probably doing the same thing. I, today, am now looking at Bitcoin and I'm thinking, I would never pay $7,500 for one invisible coin. I'm saying the same thing. And some people would say, yeah, you're right. You would be nuts to spend that kind of money. The whole thing's going to implode. It's all going to crash. A lot of people say that. But others, like my friend who I was talking to, he, per, they personally believe it's still cheap compared to what they believe that it could become. But I'm still debilitated in my mind by the exact same mindset I had all those years ago about it. Because that's how our minds work. When we doubt something... When we're not sure of something, there's always going to be a reason to keep us unsure about that thing that at some point we're going to have to overcome if we're going to ever experience what that thing may have for us, whatever it is. For a lot of people, it's tithing. 
They're always saying life is so tight. There's just no money. I don't even know where the next bill's coming from. I can't pay my bills. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why things don't change for me. I know that I have this dream in my life and nothing's fleshing out and I don't get it and I don't know why. But at the same time, they cannot bring themselves to tithe. They just can't get their minds around knowing that God promises to take care of them if they would just take care of his church. Do you know that tithing is the only thing in the entire Bible that God says, test me on this? Test me on this. If there has ever been one guarantee in the entire Bible for God taking care of you financially because of something you do, it's tithing. But the roadblock for many people on this issue is their own bills. They, They look at their bills and for some reason they think this bill is more powerful than my God. Because when you try to line your reality up with what God says is possible for your life, you think this isn't going to make sense. If I do this, I'm not going to have enough. But when we doubt what God is capable of, we miss out on what he wants to do in our lives. There's always something to block us from the truth, whatever it may be. And here... The writer John is saying that when it comes to your relationship with Jesus, when it comes to eternity, when it comes to your future, when it comes to your life right now, if more than anything, I just want you to know. I don't want you to doubt. I don't want you to question. I want you to know that you have the truth. But you have to remember what he said in the section before this because it actually shines a light, a lot of um, light on what the truth actually is. John showed us that love has to be in action. It has to have fruit. Jesus says you'll know them by their fruits. And if you think that a Bitcoin has a huge return right now, I'm telling you, in the scope of eternity, the return will be thousands full whatever it is that you may invest into other people in this life. It will be. See, we, we say this all the time around here. We say generosity is the currency of the kingdom of heaven. But yet we hold what's in our hands because we think that we need it. But the Bible tells us that if, if we give it away, it will always return. And, we're, and, and Jesus puts it this way. He says, when you give, you're storing up treasures in heaven. It's an investment like none other that nothing you can make on earth will have the return that this will. But here John says, how do you know? How do you know? How do you live your life with assurance? It's simple. He says it's simple. You keep his commandments. Okay, but watch this. I'm going to give you this. This is, this is kind of the end. I'm going to give it to you at the beginning. And then, not the beginning, we're a little bit through this. But, and then we're going to come back to this again. But I want, I want to give you this clue right now as to what the commandments are because John tells us what they are. This is Jesus' commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and that we love one another just as he has commanded us. John says, if you keep this, this twofold commandment, then you know. Then you know. But guys, assurance of who you are in Christ is not just something that you know in your head. It's not just knowledge. It's something that you know in your whole being. It's something transformational. It transforms every area of your life. John kind of, he's basically what he's saying is the gospel is something that's both deep down in you and it's something that's flowing out of you. And we're going to look at this line again in just a minute um, because I think it's very crucial in understanding this a little bit better um, and framing this idea of knowing. 
But I want to look back at verse 20 and 21, because I think this one may have got some of you. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Now, you don't need to raise your hand or anything like that, but I want you to think about this, okay? How many of you would say that you often feel like your heart condemns you? Like, you may say, I know with my knowledge, I get it in my head, I understand the gospel, I get it. I get what it means to know God. But, but I just don't know when I actually line up with the Bible if that's actually me. Is that me? Do I actually have that? See, typically in life, the things that make us, that make our hearts the heaviest um, in regards to our own lives, they're typically the mistakes of our past. Not always, but typically. It's the, either the inactions, like the times that we maybe failed to act a certain way, and even, but even more so than that, it is the actions, like the sinful actions that we have taken that our hearts just will not forget about even though Jesus Christ died for them and he forgave us of those things. But see, you have to understand that guilt plays a very central role in the debilitation of a follower of Jesus Christ. If you feel guilty, you're going to limp through life. You're going to be debilitated. It just does. If, if Satan can take you back to that moment when you were at your lowest and he can just get you to live in that place, you're going to never be who you're called to be, ever. He wants to use your worst moment as your defining moment in your life. He wants to convince you that that one mistake you made has set the trajectory for your entire life. And if you believe him and you buy into that, then it will. But it's a lie. And even this morning, if your heart has wrapped around that lie and it has told you that you're never going to be anything different than the person that you were yesterday. And even if you've been convicted and convinced and believe that your net worth is the sum of your past mistakes and that's all you'll ever be, I want to tell you today that God is bigger than our hearts. And the lies that our hearts sometimes believe. And there is a way out of that this morning, and John does show us what it is, and we're going to get to that in just a minute. But first, I really want to, you to understand something very, very important. See, there's a very big difference between conviction and guilt. Guilt reminds you of the things that you have done wrong. Guilt will even remind you of the things that you thought about doing. There's been times in my life when I'd be like, what kind of a person thinks a thought like that? What kind of a person thinks that? It's still guilt. It'll keep upon you and it will debilitate you if you let it. It will rot away your heart. It will rot away your soul and your mind if you let it. And it is the opposite of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is from Satan, the father of all lies. Guilt and condemnation in your heart is a lie, okay? It's not a lie. I say that not because you're innocent, because in a courtroom setting, you would surely be found guilty. But Jesus Christ, our advocate, he took your punishment. He washed your sins as far as the east is from the west. As Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 1, uh, though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow, Though they be red like crimson, they're going to be, I'm going to make them like wool. He washes your sins away. He takes it and he cleanses it with his blood. But guilt will cause you to keep your Bible closed. 
because you're afraid of what it will tell you if you open it. But on the other hand, conviction is what you will feel if you do open it and you let yourselves encounter the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Conviction, if you listen to it, will prevent you from making the same mistakes over and over and over again. And it's from the Holy Spirit. Reminders of your past are from Satan. Cautions about your future are from the Holy Spirit. In John 16, Jesus says that he has to go. Like we know he, he has to go, he has to die, he has, he's going to resurrect, he's going to go to heaven. He says, I have to go so that the Holy Spirit can come. And it's very interesting because in verse 7, he calls the Holy Spirit the comforter. But then in, in verse 8, he says he's going to convict the whole world of their sins, which doesn't sound very comforting to me. Until you realize that, guys, the Holy Spirit is a person who lives inside of you. And to convict in the Greek, it means to bring something to light. If you don't have anything that will bring to light the problem areas of your life, how will you ever change? Personal conviction, spirit-led conviction is very different from being convicted of a crime. Okay? The Holy Spirit is not here to punish you. The Holy Spirit is here to help you. He's here for you. But I think sometimes we read these words and we get freaked out by them. We read conviction. We read condemned. We read things like that, right? But John, in today's passage, he's actually trying to get something very different across to us than condemnation, the way that we typically think of condemnation. But we have to look very closely at this word. So John says this. He says, if your heart condemns you, okay? Condemns. Condemn, condemn, condemn. I know you probably think of when you hear the word condemn. Throughout the Bible, you get several, you get a couple different words that mean condemn or translated as condemn. And the most uh, often of them is this word catacrino. Catacrino is a word that the Apostle Paul uses several times, mostly in Romans, of course. Uh, once in 1 Corinthians. James, of course, uses it. Um, the writer of Hebrews uses it. Jesus himself uses Catacrino several times, once when he's talking about Jonah and Nineveh and how Nineveh repented, but they're going to rise up and they're going to condemn the unrepentant cities of their sins. Probably the most significant time that you get Jesus using this word catacrino is in Mark's version of the Great Commission. Uh, in Mark 16, 16, he says this. This is, in, this is 15 and 16, but he says it in verse 16. Jesus tells the disciples, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be catacrino, will be condemned. Now, this word means exactly what you think it would mean. It means to be judged and to be found worthy of punishment, something none of us want. Something that the only way to avoid is by being, believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Notice that those who do not believe will be condemned. So that's the word we usually translate as condemned, katakrino. But John, here in this epistle, he actually chooses a different Greek word. It's a similar word, but it's different. Because John is saying something different. John chooses the word katagonosko. It's a word that's only used two, in two different places in the whole Bible. John uses it twice here. And Paul uses it one time. Paul uses it in Galatians 2, uh, 11, when he's talking about how Peter, uh, how Paul confronted Peter because, Peter because of the way Peter was treating the Gentiles. 
He wasn't treating them properly. See, Peter, at one point, he was eating with Gentiles, which he should be doing. This is, this is, that's the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is there is no Jew, there is no Gentile, no slave, no free, no, no male, no female. This is the way of Jesus. So Paul's eating, or Peter's eating with the Gentiles until he sees the other Jews coming, and then he stops eating with them because he's afraid of what the other Jews might say. See, there was this huge struggle within the early church of just how much of the Jewish tradition Uh, needed to be heaped upon the Gentiles in order for the Gentiles to become Christians. And the Apostle Paul says, none. We don't need to heap anything on them. He basically says, if you accept Jesus into your heart, you let Jesus transform your life. We don't heap anything burdensome on you, but yet we believe that Jesus is powerful enough that he will do a miracle work in your life. And the things that are inside of you that need to get worked out, they're going to start to get worked out the closer you get to Jesus the less you're going to want to do those things. But Peter and this other group were actually saying something different. They were saying the Gentiles had to be circumcised. They were saying that they had to adhere to all these Jewish laws, even the ones that didn't make any sense for the Gentiles. So here in Galatians, Paul says this, I confronted Peter because he stood condemned. Catagonosco. This is the only time he uses it in all of his writings. Now, obviously, Paul is not saying that Peter is getting condemned as in, like, this is the end. You're getting locked up. Throw away the key. It's hell's your destiny. It's all you have left. You're, you're in big, big trouble. That's not what he's saying at all. Peter is the head of the entire church. And what Paul is saying here is even the head of the entire church can get things wrong. And when you get something wrong, it has to be brought to light. And that's what Paul is doing. But I want you to notice before I even explain this word to you that the one and only time that Paul ever uses it, it's when calling Peter out on the way he's treating other people. Now, back in 1 John, remember last week, the entire passage leading up to this one time that John uses it, what is he talking about? Treating other people. How we treat strangers. How we treat broken people. How we treat people who have less than we have. How we treat people who are different than us. 100% of the times that catagonosco is used in the Bible, it is in the center of text about how we treat one another. Catagonosco comes from two Greek words. The first, not surprisingly, is kata. Kata, um, it has a variety of translations in the Bible. It's a Greek word that's used hundreds of times. 58 of those times in the Bible, it's translated as against, which is the definition that is closest to where, uh, what we believe it's saying here. For instance, in Matthew 5, uh, Jesus says, uh, if you bring your gift before the altar and you remember your, your neighbor has something against you, kata, then leave your gift, go reconcile, come back. Again, it's how you relate to people. But watch this. The other word used to form the word katagonosko is the word genosko. That word from earlier, to know, to understand, knowing or understanding. Katagonosko means to be against knowing. The opposite of knowing. You could say it like this, not knowing. When your hearts do not know. Another way you could say it is this. You could say it like this. You could say confused. When you're confused. This actually makes a lot more sense when you think about the only time Paul uses it is when he's talking about Peter. What he's saying is Peter, he didn't know. He stood not knowing. He made a decision not understanding what the gospel actually says. He made a bad decision 
but he was confused. Religion, tradition, and worrying about what other people thought of him clouded him from living a life in that moment that he was called to live. It stopped him from being the person that he was called to be to the Gentiles in that moment. He was confused. And likewise, here we have people who John has to tell very, very clearly, if you think you love people, but you don't do it with actions, then you need to back it up because you're confused about what it means to follow Jesus. And that type of a selfish lifestyle is sure to lead to all sorts of crises of faith. See, if, if, if you think that Christianity is about you, you will reach a crisis of faith. That moment will come in your life when you realize this is not what I thought it would be. This is not what it's supposed to be because you've made it, you've made it you-centric instead of people-centric. And that's why we get this way. See, here in 1 John 3, this is, I found this to be fascinating and I hope this helps you grasp this. When John says, by this you know, he, the word know there, gnosko, he actually uses it in the future tense. And the commentators mostly all agree that what's happening here is John is writing in anticipation of when some of his church members are going to have some sort of a crisis of faith. Something that's going to cause them to doubt. Something that's going to cause them to be confused. And we know from the rest of the letter, things we've talked about already, things we're going to talk about, that a lot of false teachers had crept into the church. There were a lot of antichrists among them. A lot of people were saying things that were wrong. Tons of people were teaching these antichrist teachings. So it would not come as a surprise at all that some of the people here may have begun to question whether or not they're even saved. Am I saved? It was very clear that this group who John was writing to was confused. So he says, if your hearts are confused, if you aren't sure if you're in right standing with God, this is how you know. If you keep his commandments, and, and, and then if you think, okay, so he says, if you keep his commandments. Now, if we think that, we hear that, we think the Ten Commandments, we get even more confused, don't we? But he's not talking about the Ten Commandments. This is, this is actually probably the one place uh, in John's whole letter that he makes it very, very, very clear that when he says commandments, he's not talking about Exodus 20. He's talking about Matthew 22. He says, one more time, this is the commandments of Jesus. This is his commandment. This is it. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus. Believe the gospel. And love one another just as he has commanded us. This is the great commandment. This is exactly pretty much what Jesus says. Jesus said, love God, love people. He says, believe that Jesus, what Jesus says is real. Believe he's the Christ and love people. It's all John's doing. He's taking us back to Jesus. To this thing that Jesus told us is the most important thing. Ladies and gentlemen, I am here to tell you that your heart cannot truly condemn you. Your heart can confuse you. Your heart can lie to you. Your heart can tell you that you're not good enough. It can even tell you that what Jesus did for you is not good enough. It can remind you of all the things that you've broken in this life that can never be pieced back together. Your heart can even tell you that you're guilty. But it cannot issue that final verdict that says that you are condemned. Because God is greater than our hearts. And no matter what lies today, your heart has wrapped around itself. This writer tells us that it is not too big for Jesus. 
And it tells us that Jesus himself stands in opposition. He stands against that condemnation on your life. And he died to overturn any guilty charge that you've been given as long as you believe in him. John makes it so clear. Love Jesus. And your love for Jesus, it will transform your life. Don't let your life, your actions, your mistakes, your past, don't let those things debilitate the role that God has for you in this world because there is a broken world out there and it needs you to be salt and light. It needs you to be the image of Jesus Christ in it. It needs us to be the bridge for others to encounter Christ. John makes it so clear. Jesus' commandments are simple. Believe in Jesus, believe in his name, and love one another. It's the great commandment. It's almost as if John's just writing to remind us what Jesus already told us. And again, guys, we have to realize that this is all a progression. That's, that's why I love the letters of the Bible like this. It's a progression. John just got done telling us that if you see the world in need and you have what it takes to meet that need and you don't do it, don't let your heart be deceived into believing that you're okay. Because that's one really good indication that you're not okay. But then here in the next verse, he gives us the test. He says, there is a test. There is a sign. This is the sign. How do you know? Do you care about other people? Since Jesus came into your life, are you at least moving in the direction of becoming more loving? Is generosity becoming more important to you? Guys, generosity is so important to the gospel because generosity is the way that we reflect the gospel to our world. And just like everything else, guys, it has always been this way. The love of God has always been evident. It, Jesus was a manifestation of how much God loved you. But it's always been this way. God's always worked through people to show other people the gospel. Listen, let's real quick, let's turn our Bibles back, back with me all the way to the prophet Jeremiah. Okay? In Jeremiah 22, uh, one day I'm going to teach on this entire passage because there's so much in here. It's amazing. But there's one line that really stands out above all the others. Because it's the one time in the entire Bible when God actually tells us from his own mouth what it means to know him. And this is what it says. It says, he judged the cause of the poor and the needy, and then it was well. Is not this what it means to know me, declares the Lord. Is this not what it means to know me, to judge the cause of the poor and the needy? Another translation says he pled the cause of the poor and the needy. He was an advocate for the poor and the needy. Our world needs people who know God. That's what it needs. And if God's people, right, if all of the people who claim to know God would just take that step of faith and they would step out and would actually do the things that God himself tells us is what it means to know him, the world would change overnight overnight. But most of us are either too busy in our own world or we're too bogged down by our confused hearts that we don't do anything. The devil wants to confuse our hearts. And if your heart is confused today, there is hope for you. But you have to diagnose it. You have to understand it. You have to realize, man, maybe something's wrong here. Your heart is confused if you believe that you do not know God because of something in your past that you've done wrong. Your heart's confused. 
Your heart is confused if you believe that you can't know God while at the same time struggle with something that this life may be throwing at you. You're confused. On the contrary, your heart is confused if you believe that you do know God because you don't ever sin or because you come to church. You're confused. Your heart is confused if you believe that you do know God because you prophesy in his name or because you cast demons out in his name. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, on the last day, confused people are going to leave confused only to find themselves that it got them nowhere. If you think that there is something that you're doing in your life that will get you in right standing with God, you are confused. Believe in Jesus and love people, but understand that believing in Jesus is the center. Loving people is the evidence of a transformed life. And yes, morality will follow, but morality will not lead. And morality will not lead other people to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, but love will. Morality is not a strong enough foundation to stand on. And if you stand on morality as the building blocks of your faith, the entire thing is going to collapse the moment you make a mistake. It's not the gospel. The gospel is that on your worst day, Jesus Christ laid down his life for you. Guys, transformed people are not perfect, but they are becoming people of love. And that's my prayer for our church, that we continuously grow and become more and more people of love.